Seriously, welcome so, to so our first live recording in Toronto. First, thanks for coming. <laughs> our second live recording ever. Yes, and it's also like really weird. You might experience these moments where we're like looking at each other oddly because we don't typically look at each other when we talk. <laughs> so it's hella weird because obviously Nora's often in Quebec City. I don't know why she made that life choice. I'm often... <laughs> Here in Toronto, I don't know why I stick with this life choice, and uh, talking together is weird. So you are going to get to hear the unedited version of the podcast recording, in which there are more awkward pauses, but not a lot, just like our general awkwardness becomes more apparent. And on display, because normally, you know, Sandy's under a blanket. <laughs> and I'm... Uh, <laughs> So I moved into my apartment, there was a couch, and I took that couch and I put it on its side, and the couch on its side with a busted crib is my studio. <laughs> and obviously we don't have a lot of other people or um, audiences while we are doing our recording, so this is an interesting format. We're going to have an opportunity for questions and for you all to be a part of the recording. So, um, you know, as we're talking, generate some good content for the discussion afterwards. You're not getting paid. Uh, but, <laughs> but this is really great because uh, it is so much nicer to record not under a blanket. If anybody wants to gift me a studio, that'd be great. Before we start, uh, we want to acknowledge that we're on the traditional territory of the Huron-Wendat people, uh, the Mississauga's new credit First Nation, and uh, Toronto has been a meeting place for uh, time immemorial and remains a meeting place for people from around the world. And uh, we honor our role uh, and the responsibilities that we have uh, on, this, on this land and on the land where eventually I go home and back home. It's also here on Wendat land, which is very neat, and you should look up that history. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, whenever we start the podcast, we say, hi, hey, Sandy. Hey, Nora. <laughs> What's up? <sighs> and then we awkwardly talk through it, and then I delete it later, and then you think, holy crow, they're so wicked, they don't even <laughs> say um. And it's because for three hours, I'm like, delete the ums. <laughs> um... <laughs> <laughs> So tonight, 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 um, I hear there was um, some bougie fucks down at Roy Thompson Hall. <laughs> there were some bougie fucks down at Roy Thompson Hall. Did anybody go to the demo? Oh, Ooh, you were yes, almost everyone was there. Oh my god, that's great! I would love to hear in the discussion what that demo was like because we were setting up the room, and we were, had another gig earlier in the day, so it, please tell us about it. <clears throat> but I hope it was good and well attended. It should have been. We need more of that because, well, we're going to tell you why, because we're going to be debating here today who's worse, from or Bannon. <laughs> so Sandy's been doing a lot of research. Lots of research. <laughs> uh, we, draw, we drew names out of a hat. <laughs> And I got... <laughs> no, we didn't. <laughs> no, we didn't. Uh, theatrics. 
And I got David Frum. <clears throat> and so I'm arguing tonight, be it resolved, <laughs> that David Frum is worse than Nazi Steve Bannon. <laughs> <laughs> and I am obviously arguing, be it resolved, that the white supremacist is the worst one. <laughs> or are they both white supremacists? Questions. In, uh, in, in, in our lives, we always, we have, it's so funny, it's like. This is what I do under my blanket, too. <laughs> Sandy's drinking I some drink wine. wine. <laughs> uh, in, in our lives, we have goalposts that, we, that remind us of, of certain periods, right? And we've got the house, that maybe the apartment, maybe the, the family that we saw, and the, maybe for me, it's the Ryerson Student Center and all the trauma that comes with this space. <laughs> um, in, on, in the activist movement in Canada, there's, there, there's been benchmarks, very important benchmarks for the last 20 years. And one, you know, you know we had uh, the, the rise of the anti-globalization movement, which was a global movement. And, and it, was, it was, you know, the battle in Seattle and then, and then the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City. And you still see the impact of the Summit of the Americas in Quebec City. If you get five socialists in a room in Quebec City together, they are like, <laughs> fucking remember that day, right? <laughs> it's really charming. And if you just remind me, there's like some great stories and I can tell you one about the, the RCMP later. Okay. Then September 11th happened and everything changed for social movements in North America. And it's a story that you all know. After September 11th, we, North America, were plunged into a war, right? A war, well, we called it a war. I don't think anyone in Iraq was calling that a war. And Canada said no, right? Yeah. February 15th. One of the last times we could say yay about Canada. <laughs> yeah. And the last time we'd say no to war. Well, oh, yes. Okay. So February 15, 2002, who was there? <gasps> what a crowd. This is really exciting. Okay. So February 15, 2002 was the day that the world said no to war. It was the biggest single mobilization in the world. Wait, was actually nobody in this crowd there? But like, that's four, that's amazing. Wow, that is amazing. That's me. amazing, because if, if you'd asked that question a decade ago, literally everyone was there, right? Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. I was helping a friend film a tattoo documentary in Guelph, and then we went to the little rally. Okay. <laughs> that's how I got into radio and television arts at Ryerson, by the way. Um, the, 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 the day that the world said no to war was the war in Iraq, and that obviously was the thrust behind the Canadian anti-war movement, and we convinced the government to not go to war in Iraq, mm -hmm. which was a victory. And who was the flack justifying why we go to war? It's David Frum, right? David Frum the son of the beloved and celebrated Barbara Frum, who was a ge different generation's Peter Mansbridge, right? And uh, David Frum was working for George Bush, and they created the conditions, the social conditions, the political conditions to invade Iraq, and everything that goes around with that. So that creates a, an industry based on war, an industry based on guns, an industry based on death and on misery, and on sending people to a war, and then when they come back to the United States, zero help for their mental health, zero help for their employment, zero help for their families. And they create the economic conditions for, you know, the crash of 2008. So I'm arguing that from is worse because 
he, with you know, many other people, were the architect of the misery that is required for someone like Bannon to not just create uh, whatever the fuck he created, because I didn't research him. Um, <laughs> <laughs> actually, I'm kidding. I don't, like, I'm sure it was, what was it? Infowars? Breitbart. Breitbart, mm -hmm. right. Um, and not just that, and not just be the guy that convinced the world to vote for Donald Trump, but actually it's the social conditions that convince people for, to vote for Donald Trump, right? Like what the hell political strategy did Donald Trump actually employ to get elected? He was just like, I'm gonna be countercultural, I'm gonna be like, fuck all of these guys like I always am, and he got elected. And so this is the sum total of me talking about David Frum tonight. Okay, it's my turn. And that's why I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> So I'm about to win this argument because while that was like nice and well-reasoned, I have just a list that I'm gonna read out of all the terrible things that Bannon has done. Okay, he started Breitbart. Mm -hmm. He says that I am a voice for the alt-right. He's endorsed by proud white supremacists everywhere. He's anti-immigration, he's a giant xenophobe. Uh, he's into global organizing. He's gone to France, the UK, and tried to ramp up all of the organizing of their like super, super right-wing, super, super white supremacist uh, political parties. Uh, he's trying to start like this global war of like the West versus Islam, which is like, you know, uh, obviously awful. Uh, he's got this quote where he's like, let them call you xenophobes when he's talking to this like ultra right wing party in France, because uh, it is, uh, it's good, wear it as a badge of honor. He says that he wants to destroy the political establishment as it currently exists, including the Republican Party, which he doesn't think is right wing enough. Or Very cool. Braving enough, sir. <laughs> Just, you had your turn, okay? <laughs> this is my turn. <laughs> uh, his ex-wife has said that he is an anti-Semite and didn't want their kids to go to school with Jews. And, uh, oh, he thinks that the media is the opposition party. He's a super misogynist. He was the architect of the tra travel ban. And also, oh, it doesn't matter. Who cares? <laughs> Who's worse? They both suck. <laughs> <laughs> Not the point! <laughs> That's the end of our debate. We're gonna get into something more important now. <laughs> so now that we're at a political baseline where we both agree, where we all agree that they all suck, I see all nodding heads and no one disagreeing. <laughs> we wanna discuss, uh, like, more importantly, why we're at, where we're at, where an, an institution like the, what, what is the institution called? The Monk Foundation. I was about to say the Monk Center, which is like at U of T, which is another thing, but they're all like interconnected, you know? Where Monk and his derivatives, <laughs> like the Monk Foundation, uh, gets to put on a show like this that is entertainment, because it is entertainment. It's at Roy Thompson Hall. That's where entertainment happens. I know I've performed there. Oh, what? <laughs> Sorry, no. Yeah, I did. What did you sing? Um, uh, probably uh, Laudan Moustang. <laughs> Some opera shit that I used to. I, had a I sang that too. Other, I sang that too. <laughs> did you? Yeah. I had a whole other childhood career as a choir girl. <laughs> anyway, I performed at Roy Thompson Hall. But at Roy Thompson Hall, people are paying like hundreds. What's the, what's the highest ticket price? 200 bucks. $200 to be entertained by a debate, by a debate between uh, the two different sides that we've obviously very well articulated, the very two very different, very different sides of uh, From and Bannon, From who, whose whole political trajectory and career 
uh, creates the conditions for someone like Bannon to exist. The point, like, so what we're going to discuss is what, how is it, like, what place are we in right now in our political trajectory that an institution like Monk, uh, like the Monk Foundation gets to exist and uh, create these debates that I don't think has ever had, or has had only one person of color throughout their entire, throughout their entire uh, career. Two, the, maybe. Maybe two. Yeah. Of, of like, debates. I only heard one debate and there were two people of color in it. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, CBC, for running that. Right. Um, and uh, and have the, this, like, establishment create these events as these really important public debates, I guess, that are supposed to or need to happen right now is the way that people are talking about this. How are we at this political moment and what does it mean? This is all connected to a broader context, right? We know these things are happening around the world. We know that there's, a, you know, the way that, like, someone at the CBC might explain this is there's a polarization, right? But it's not a polarization. What we've had is a collapse of those progressive organizations that are formed out of struggle, because struggle has become more and more impossible, right? So I heard tonight that people who had their faces covered, it was, it was illegal, right? Okay, so does anyone know the history of that law? It is illegal. So in 2013, at the end of, of the federal parliament, it was, it was after the, the student strike stuff, actually maybe in 2012. I might be wrong in the dates because I haven't actually talked about this in a long time. It's 2012. No, no, the student strikes was 2012, but I don't remember of this law. I think the law okay. came the year after in 2013. Okay. And so uh, the federal government liked what the Quebec government was doing to crush student dissent so much because the, the Quebec government and then the municipalities allowed uh, face coverings to be called, uh, to be deemed illegal at a rally. And so the federal government adopted its own law. And so in Canada, it's already illegal to wear a disguise with the intent of committing a crime. So you put on a clown mask and you rob a bank you are arrested for robbing a bank and looking freaky, right? Mm -hmm. If you put on a mask and you beat someone up, you both, same thing. So why would you need the additional piece of legislation to allow for you to be arrested? If, if already you put on a mask at Roy Thompson Hall and you punch someone in the head, it's doubly illegal, right, already. Uh, and it's because it's supposed to scare people. Right? It's supposed to scare you, and it's supposed to give police an extra way to justify your arrest and your detention and limit your free expression, free speech. Now, does anyone know what the maximum penalty is if you are wearing a mask and arrested uh, at a rally that's de deemed illegal, which the police can deem at any time that they want? Do you know what the maximum penalty is? You just guess, like it doesn't matter if you're wrong. <laughs> so wrong. <laughs> <laughs> No, that would be really wild, because that's like first-degree murder. <laughs> but I'll give you a hint. It's between 5 and 20 years. 10 years. It's 10 years. And, and, it's, and it's like, why, you know, why would you put on a mask to go to a rally? What are you trying to hide? And it's like, okay, you can have that debate in activist circles, and, you know, that's a, that's a really important debate to have. But it's like, well, why would you put on a mask? Well, you know, you could be from Montreal and you love being like freakily dressed <laughs> as a clown and it's a theatrical thing and then you're arrested, right? You could exclusive be- Exclusive to Montreal. It, that, that is exclusive to Montreal, yeah. <laughs> um, you can be, oh, I don't know, covering your eyes from tear gas, right? You could be, I don't know, maybe a member of some sort of job that you cannot be identified and you actually do want to obscure your face. Or, I don't know, maybe you're in Prince Albert and it's super cold 
and you're wearing a balaclava because literally that's the only way to be outside for an hour, right? There's a lot of legitimate reasons to do this and still, and so that attack on, on our free organizing and free expression sends a message to average people saying that these are dangerous people, these are, these are gonna, these are, this is a dangerous space, do not upset the status quo. Mm -hmm. While at the same time, you don't have organizations, social movements that have the, the, the power and the force and the resources to confront, to confront that, to stop that. And so where's the fight back to the far right? I mean, how many people are honestly afraid of the far right? A lot of people are. I know Sandy's like, fuck everybody. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I, um, but, but we do know that the, their, tool, their tool belt is getting more uh, scary, right? And they, and they attack people more. And if you have any sort of precarious status at all, or if your, parent, if your kids depend on you to like, be around, right? You can't get arrested. And so there's this chill that makes it even more difficult. Uh, and the state has worked very hard to crush these things. While at the same time, we have this fake discussion about free speech and free expression, which is not just that we have free speech, like we, Sandy and I have the right tonight to be doing this and not be intimidated by anyone to do this or whatever, but you have the right to fucking Roy Thompson Hall and $200 tickets. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I think it's like really critical to understand, like I wish we had like the type of public broadcaster that would be um, doing like the really hard hitting questions about what's happening right now about this because what I think people really need to understand about this moment, about what's happening with the Monk Foundation doing these debates is an attempt from a really uh, very wealthy corporate entity in Canada, conservative, to take over the political sphere, to control what the parameters of the political debates are. That's what's happening. That is the real danger, where you get to say that the, the, the legitimate debate is between from and Bannon, and not between some other, I don't know, I'm not gonna think of anything right off the top of my head, but some other people who would make more sense um, in the Bannon current and a slug. <laughs> the slug would win. Um, Sure. <laughs> or like, I don't know, Nora and... Jonathan Kay, fuck you. Oh. I would do that, by the way. I would debate Jonathan Kay, but he would never debate me because he's actually not totally... You seem to debate unsmart. on Twitter a lot. No, nah, it's not a debate. That's just uh, yelling. Throwing shit. But, but that's what's happening. And I don't know that enough people... Well, actually, I haven't seen anyone say that as an analysis online, on social media at all. This is what's happening. Monk is a mining baron. He has taken over uh, a lot of the educational institution at the University of Toronto, and what that ends up looking like is you know, the Monk School of Global Affairs, where there's like no courses on Africa, because there's a lot of mining there, so who wants to study what's like the political situation in Africa, or like the, the political situation that's happening in Latin America with respect to mining is washed over in the, global, um, in the Monk School of global affairs. Why? Because it's the monk school. <laughs> uh, he has some, he, well, you know, the, the corporation has some control over what happens with respect to our education um, with the, the, you know, the, the social milieu that the educational system is creating. Um, they're they're uh, putting parameters on what it is that people are allowed to know. And so for them to start up a foundation that is going to start having the most important political debates and then convincing CBC to, um, to 
broadcast them all, or not all, but some. I don't. Did, is the CBC broadcasting the one that happened tonight? They're not. Someone told us that they were, but they might we like just watch Ideas. Although Ideas is better than that. Well, we'll <laughs> we'll see. Um, but CPAC does that does broadcast. That's right. Is gonna bro is broadcasting this? Okay. So like the there there's an impact there where what they're doing is controlling, but also attempting to shift what uh, the acceptable political parameters are. And should a corporation like Monk have control over that debate? Of course, it's two really ridiculous right-wing people debating each other on like who might have like a difference in, in I don't know what, like Favorite time. vintage of wine. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, of course it is, because that is what benefits a mining corporation such as Monk. It doesn't benefit Monk to have someone like Nora, <laughs> like Nora on the stage. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's not, it's not like, they're not going to have uh, a debate where 15 in fairness um, is having a discussion uh, with an economist who who doesn't believe that workers have rights. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like they're they're not going to have that kind of debate. They'll probably maybe they'll have a debate at some point uh, with an economist that doesn't believe that workers should have any rights and an economist that believes that six days should be limited to two. You know what I mean? Because that's beneficial to a corporate um, elite. But but they but the, the the type of debates that they are bringing to the public are very much created so that this corporate influence can define the political sphere. And that's very dangerous. And so let's have a conversation about some of the links because you know you talked a little bit already about Bannon's global influence. People who are students of the left or who are socialists or who are Marxists or communists or anarchists understand that global organizing and, and you Sandy are involved in a, in a global movement, Black Lives Matter, that is you know, based mostly in a couple of countries, but you can see that, make those international connections. But we, by and large, on the left, have lost that global solidarity, which is so important. And while we have lost that global solidarity and lost that global organization, the far right has fully capitalized on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so Bannon, Bannon comes up in Canadian politics in a bunch of different ways. But he comes up in one very important way, which is in the evidence that was submitted in the sentencing trial of Alexandre Bissonnette in Quebec City. Bissonnette, of course, is the person who walked into the uh, Islamic Cultural Center in Saint-Foix and killed six people and injured more than 30. Steve Bannon was on the list of people that Bissonnette was frequently reading on Twitter with a whole bunch of other shitty people, like literally a whole parade of shit, shitty people that can be all put onto a fucking catapult and launched into the fucking atmosphere. I mean, like, in theory, right? Not in practice. Into the sun. Not yeah. just the atmosphere, into the sun. It's I mean, better. the atmosphere would let their heads explode, so, like, whatever, right? But then if they got into the sun, they would also burn. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Better. That's true. More, yeah, that's true. Okay, I have to agree with that. Um, I, as long as they're not launching it to Uranus. Not funny. Had to say it. Okay. Not funny. <laughs> that's not true. That's funny. Um... And so we've got Bannon, and, and you know, actually, the, like trying to deal with these super sad things with a lot of humor is really important, in my opinion, um, because it's so sad. But ba Bannon's like influence can be seen in literally in the only mass shooting in Canada that's happened in a religious institution in my town, very close to where I live, and 
What was the only thing people talked about this week about Bannon coming? What was the protest? Mm -hmm. Which is good that the protest had coverage. But where in the fuck were like thinking journalists saying, hmm, okay, we've got this thing going on, there's this protest, and you know, people are opposed to it, okay, so there's that. Is there another Canadian connection? Nothing. What about the Bannon connection to the election in Brazil? Right? Like, I, there was a connection. He's, he's uh, an acolyte of uh, the newly elected president, Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro, in Brazil. And then that mining thing comes up again. And I, like, f the mining thing for me, like, like, fuck, man, my family is only here because of mining, um, to be in the mine, right? Like, my great-grandfather was a miner. My father worked in an open pit mine. Um, in Northern Ontario, and, and the, the, the role that Bay Street plays in global misery, and in Canadian misery, because the, the mining misery is not just there or there or there, it's also, uh, right, there, Northern Ontario, where we still have a colonial mentality, because we are still displacing people, we are still causing misery, we are still flooding, we are still destroying, we are still, still refusing to accept the truth so we all know that anybody in power is not even denying anymore. And that, that, that connection to mining is so fascinating because it's like, what in the fuck do we need gold for? <laughs> you know? I mean... What? Important questions. <laughs> I, I, it's like, true. I, I guess you can make the argument that there's that, like, that chromium is in your phone and we need it all for that or whatever. But it's like, no, like, they, these, are, these are exploits to further enrich rich people, mm -hmm. right? At the crushing expense of communities. And how do this, does the Canadian establishment respond to this? Well, let's look at CBC. What in the fuck did CBC say about Bolsonaro's election? Is disgusting, right? He, CBC is like, hey, everybody, here is 1,200 words about how your portfolio is going to benefit massively from this wonderful election. And then, like, the tweeter is trying to be like, oh, try to reframe it. No, didn't get that one right. Try it again. <laughs> Ooh, this is super awkward, right? <laughs> and you can just imagine the poor, like, intern trying to figure out how to make this not sound shitty or whatever. And it's like, how about you just write what you think and then get fired and then we can rally around you anyway. <laughs> um, and, and so, and, and it, was a, it, was a, it was an interesting moment of actually witnessing what power thinks. Like, one of the things that I think is super fascinating about the people that bought tickets tonight is not, there was no shame is that the folks you were, who were there, the protesters, you got to see who was there, right? You, like, they're not in gilded palaces. They are, if you go down to Rosedale, that shit's like fucking unbelievable. That's where the gold is. That's where the gold is. <laughs> Guaranteed. But we still have a bit of access to them, and that access is gonna continue to, to disappear as they retreat and as things get worse. Mm -hmm. And so we haven't really talked about the far right and fascism, and I think that maybe that's the way that we can kind of wrap up, because we're gonna talk a little, like I think for another 10 minutes, or so, and then that's where we'll, that's gonna be a free for all. Um, and so what is the way to fight against the rise in fascism? Well, it's like, first of all, we need to properly identify what are the conditions that are created to help fascism. It's like the liberals play a role, the conservatives obviously play a role, the NDP is playing a fucking pathetic role, uh, the labor movement is playing a role, right? It's like when power consolidates itself to remove more power from citizens, 
there's, we need to have something to fight back against it. And people power is like, you know, if we all were like, okay, we're going to form a new thing and everybody in this room is going to work together and we're going to build it, that would be great. But we all have other ways that we exist within this world that actually has more power than just us hanging out, right? We, we're all workers or we're all volunteers, we're all community members, or maybe we're parents, or maybe we're caretakers, or maybe we're, we're children who are super engaged with our family, right? We all have centers of power and we rely on those centers of power to help organize us. Mm -hmm. Because we can't just do it. Because if, we're, if it's up to us, it's like, it's crushingly sad. But what have they done? They have saddled generations now with student debt uh, in a way that if you miss class, it's as if you're just throwing $500 into the air because you've already paid for it and you're missing your, your lecture. They have then pushed that expense onto you as a young adult, so you absolutely have no way to afford to do this stuff without actually working two or three jobs. Wages are suppressed, benefits are suppressed, desperation sits in, you can't afford to live in Toronto because what in the fuck has happened in this city in the last seven years, right? I left six years ago, like I cannot believe what has happened in this city. Yeah, even three years. Like, in the change of like what it costs to live in this city in the last three years has been enormous. And that reorients us politically, while at the same time we're told that, you know, it just takes one person to make a difference. Just be that one person. And, so, and then who the fuck can blame that one person to try, <laughs> right? And then they, like, get their head chopped off, and you're like, whoa, I'm totally not going to try to be that one person, right? And, and, think, no. and, it does, and it's because it's a lie. It doesn't take one person to make a fucking difference. That is a fucking lie. Mm -hmm. And part of the condition that we need to be struggling against right now is uh, a lack of memory and uh, a lack of, I don't know, like critical thinking in the public sphere. So what, <laughs> what <laughs> yeah, it's just, just like that. straight up, you know? Uh, one of, you know, the thing that Nora is pointing out about like this connection between mining and Canada, like that should be on display in the discussion about why Monk brings someone like Bannon, someone like from these two people together to have a debate. That should be a part of the discussion. Is anybody making that connection in our public sphere? No, they're not. Rabble. Well, rabble. Rabble. <laughs> yes, rabble. Yes, of course, sorry. Let me, let me rephrase. Yes. Let me rephrase. So for the, rate, for the show, uh, some folks in the audience are talking about some really great activist grassroots work that is happening. Absolutely. But what I mean is in our kind of mainstream public like social sphere, is anyone having the discussion? Has, has anyone from our public broadcaster? The public broadcaster is supposed to um, give, in my opinion, the public broadcaster, no, this is just correct, okay? The public broadcaster <laughs> is supposed to, <laughs> it's, it's supposed to be in the interests of the people bringing us what we need to know. Well, this is a really important fucking connection that should have been made that has not been made. And what I mean by memory is things like, when, when you allow the Canadian Alliance, does anyone remember the Canadian Alliance? Put up your hand if you remember the Canadian Alliance. Okay, great. Uh, they were a joke party of the right, <clears throat> a really joke right-wing party that made the most ludicrous right-wing ideas 
back in the day, we thought they were ludicrous, and now it's 2018, and <laughs> you know, the world's falling apart, and now they look like left wing or something. Like, I don't know. But it was like a joke. He would turn on the radio, and um, all of the, the uh, political commentators would be making fun of this political party that was to the right of the, the conservative party, the progressive conservative party, the federal con progressive conservative party, that were making all of these really ludicrous promises. Stephen Harper was a part of that party. And they rebranded and uh, merged, or kind of ate. <laughs> they, they won the, the right-wing debate, essentially. And they like kind of ate the Progressive Conservative Party and rebranded as the Conservative Party. That ridiculous party, the Canadian Alliance, is now the, the Conservative Party of Canada. I haven't heard a journalist talk about that trajectory. I've heard it, I've heard about that trajectory in spaces of the left where we're talking about like, oh my God, I can't believe they're actually being taken seriously now. Remember when everybody thought they were hilarious, when they were just a joke? But, but the memory in our like social, like in our social political, like mainstream media, like the, you know, the, the dialogue that we have like out in the world is so limited that we do not remember that we knew one time the whole, our public broadcaster, the whole, like, all the mainstream media knew at one point that all of the ideas that, con that the current conservative party is putting forward were ludicrous and to be laughed at, and everyone was doing that. But somehow, we've forgotten all of that, and we take them seriously, partially because they buy everything, right? Like, they, they, they um, make really good strategic alliances with people who own a lot and own things in mainstream media and, and so on but partially because we fucking suck at this shit. <laughs> I mean, I don't, but like, <laughs> you know, like the world sucks at this shit. Like we, this is not a time to be forgetting the past, although it seems like that is defining our time. <laughs> it's like forgetting the past and forgetting that the present is even at all happening. It's like, you know, the, our, our whole world is about veneers. It's about Instagram filters. Like the entire world is a giant Instagram filter uh, where things that are really heinous are being hidden from us simply because the public refuses to discuss them or is it's being hidden from the public. And that's a really dangerous situation to be in <clears throat> because it allows it creates the conditions for a stupid fucking debate like this, which all it does is shift everything to the right. It just shifts like, you know, uh, pop culture, let's say pop, you know, like political popular culture to the right. So the mayoral elections wrapped up and uh, you folks <laughs> elected uh, John Tory. There was no mayoral election. And Faith Let's Goldie. Just, it didn't happen. <laughs> I want our political memory to be even shorter. Okay? <laughs> we just. I feel like I take it all back. <laughs> didn't happen. Oh, so Faith Golden Dawn got 3% uh, of the vote. And. Uh, okay, you should explain the joke. Does everybody get the joke, Golden Dawn? Yeah, so Golden Dawn yes. is the Greek fascist party. <laughs> okay. And so it is such a hilarious thing to call Faith because she's also Greek. Um, and so, anyway, so, so Faith Golden Dawn comes in third place. And then um, what happens in Mississauga? Like, a guy literally investigated for hate crimes right now comes in second place with 14% of the vote, right? And we've got 2019 coming up. 
And if I was them, if I was Faith, I would be looking at the conservative map. I would be seeing where the most fascist sympathy exists in Canada, and I'd be fucking moving there, and I'd be getting myself elected. That's what I'd be doing. And if she listens to this podcast, fuck you. If you do that, I will fucking confront you for taking my idea. <laughs> Nora and I have debated punching Nazis, but it was a really short debate, and we both won. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> consensus, I believe. We achieved consensus. But that's what I would do, right? Because Maxime Bernier is going to be elected because he's, like... Bernier's not going to be elected because of his new party. Bernier's going to be elected because his father was elected for 60 years. Yeah. And, you know, he didn't even win his own riding for the leadership race, but he will get elected again. Mm -hmm. And so Bernier's new far-right party will probably have more than one person sitting in, in, in Ottawa. Mm -hmm. That's my, that would be my, my guess. Mm -hmm. And so what is the fight back? Like, how do we mount these oppositions? Well, it depends on where you're located, right? Do you have access to a union that you can be like, actually, no, it's just so desperate, I can't even. <laughs> do, do you start to say our job is to make sure that anti-racism is part of what we do? Mm -hmm. Do we have an anti-racist frame? And we're not doing this because we've got white guilt and, and I'm just like, I'm so like, oh my God, like I'm just, my existence oppresses people. And it's like, correct, it does, shut up, stop oppressing people. <laughs> like the best you could do is then stop that shit. Stop. <laughs> just do nothing. Um, but, we, but, but adding the racist, racial analysis to work, to seeing uh, service work or the service industry or retail work or shitty contract flipping or the fight for 15 or who's unionized and who's not unionized. Uh, who's going to get nailed the most in the public sector? Um, it, you know, I know in the statistics in the United States, like what, what group of people has the highest employment rate? It's black women, which shouldn't surprise you, and I suspect it's the same thing in Canada. And so it's like, what are we collectively doing to center who, the people most under attack in the work that we're doing? And whether that is like the most super radical work and we're like confronting Nazis all the time, or it's actually we have a community-based organization trying to run a fucking tool library. I don't know. Like, that shit's important. But, like, we can always be doing this. I don't know. I just, I don't even know what a tool library is. But um, uh, It's great. I've used it. It sounds like a Toronto thing, right? <laughs> uh, and, and so it's like, where can we plug in? And are you in a situation where you are literally like, fuck, there is nowhere I can plug in. There's literally nothing I can do. And if that's the case, I want to, I think that that would be a really interesting discussion to have because, mm. um, you know, I'm in Quebec and there's... This could be a whole other discussion. Quebec still has social movements. There are still social movements, and they are flawed, and some of them are wonderful, and the social movement pressure is going to be what stops Francois Legault, right? Francois Legault has said that he wants to make sure that he's not going to be allowed to, to teach in a classroom wearing a religious head covering. Attach, attacking teachers in Quebec is literally a declaration of war, and they will fuck him. Right? Even with all of the issues that exist within Quebec society around religious symbols and racism, it will still be a fight back because there's also strong organizations. Unions have already come out against this and the unions are really radical. And also, let, let's not forget, as we said on the last podcast, like in Quebec, they toppled a majority government. Here, we're like, like, I've heard many people be, oh, well, you know, Doug Ford got a majority. There's nothing we can do. <laughs> like, there is. You know, you, we, like, this is, you know, this is the public. We own that shit. We should be able to take it down if we want to. And we can. We just need to have the political will and the political imagination to do everything that we need to do to get to that eventuality. And in Quebec, these social movements, the existence of such social movements where you're able to organize in, 
Like that's the benefit of having something like that. You're not afraid of a majority government because <laughs> you could take him down because you can Im imagine that to be possible. And you have the structures and the experience and the memory. The memory in Quebec is really important. The memory of struggle, the memory of the, of the, of the silent revolution, and the memory of, of that, that, that period of time where the Catholic Church literally did control entire society, right? Like that was a very oppressive period of time where women were like forced to have 15 fucking kids, right? Fuck that, right? That would literally be the fucking worst. <laughs> um, and so the, I think one of the last things I wanna say, and you probably have your own last things that you wanna say, I want to name one of the biggest problems that we have. And, it, and we don't name it this enough. And so sorry if you're like one of my close friends that has to listen to me fucking talk about this all the time, but I don't actually think anyone's here that has to listen to me all the time. So that's the nice thing about being a thousand kilometers away from this town. <laughs> Other than Sandy, sorry. <laughs> just offended some people in the audience. Like, Did I? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't, I don't get to see you very often. This is a fucking celebration. Um, we... we <laughs> What do we lose when we don't have social movements? I mean, I think what we lose is really obvious. So you have in your head all the things that we lose when we don't have social movements. But I will tell you the other things that we lose. We lose a location for debate. What happens when we lose a location for debate? It means that if I'm struggling with something, I can't witness a debate and listen to all sides and actually learn. It means that I can't say something. Someone's like, whoa, fuck, that was wrong. And it's like, hey, we are in a debate. There's literally nowhere for us to practice that. What else do we lose? We lose the opportunity for people to learn skills like leadership skills and organizing skills and learn how to pull together a meeting and be like, fuck, there's only two people in my meeting that's so shitty. Or yeah, my meeting's fucking wicked, right? That social movement gives you that experience. It gives you the connections with people who have done it before, who can be like, we tried this in like 1975 and it didn't work. And you can be like, sweet, let's try it again. And then everyone debates. And then they're like, no, that guy was right. Like, we can't do that again. That was bad. Um, we lose the location to elaborate our knowledge, our collective knowledge. And so what happens is we're on Twitter or we're on Facebook or this Instagram thing, which I'm fucking thank God not on. Because I can't stand... Filters? I mean, I like filters, right? <laughs> she doesn't know, guys. I mean... <laughs> she doesn't know. No, I mean, I have two air filters running at all times to fucking help she my... She has no idea. <laughs> help my house smell less. Um, we're in construction right now. It's one of these fucking... Anyway, whatever. Whatever. This is fucking a rant. Um, we... We are throwing things into the void and we don't have the opportunity to learn. And so if you're young and you've never really experienced this stuff, it's really hard, right? I, I w I'm a fucking like super white kid from Georgetown, Ontario, right? Like I literally remember the first time I met someone who was Jewish and I was 15 and I was like, that guy looks like my dad. I didn't realize, like I just had no idea, right? And, and coming to downtown Toronto and learning in the student movement what, how things work, how people think, meeting new people, that was really, really beneficial. And that's not something that everyone has. And when you lose those movements and those places of action, it's really, really isolating. And so we need to also create communities, whether they're online communities or they're real life communities or they're both, to help people make the mistakes, say the wrong thing, learn how to say the right thing, understand like how to talk on the side with someone or how to make a pronouncement, how to back up an argument, how to change your argument, how to listen to someone and be like, I hear what you're saying and I think that it's wrong and, and learn how to talk to each other again um, because we, we actually have lost that. 
And what we hear from the mainstream is just that the left is unreasonable and shutting people down and blah, blah, fucking blah, shit, blah, blah, right? <laughs> and that's not it, actually. What has happened is they have crushed our movements and then they blame us for it. In closing, like the point, always, always, always. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> Sorry, so the person who does our transcribing is Rebecca Rose, who's sitting in the audience right here. You can wave at everyone. <laughs> and uh, she was just remarking earlier that sometimes on the podcast I make sounds that she doesn't know how <laughs> to spell. Like, bleh. Don't worry, we'll, we'll, we'll cut that part out. Don't. <laughs> you should see what I cut out. <laughs> There are some sounds. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of sounds. So that was a rewind sound because I wanted to erase that part, and we're going back. So the point, as per usual, is like uh, we're trying to get at everyone who listens to this podcast how important it is to organize. Earlier, I joked when I didn't put up my hand and to the question, who's afraid of the, the alt-right or white supremacists? I'm freaking terrified. I'm terrified because... Actually, like if you if you take a look at history, you take a look at where we're at now. Um, there's not a lot of like uh, hope for like a, a peaceful resolution <laughs> at this stage. I you know if we manage to change the minds of all the the people who hate and want to kill us, that will be the weirdest thing to ever occur. <laughs> okay? So, and if that's not going to happen, there's going to be an alternative. And that alternative is not going to be good. It's already not good. It's already too violent. It already results in too many deaths. It's already coming for all of us. If it hasn't come for you yet, uh, you're sitting here, so it's coming for you eventually. <laughs> Sorry. Or someone you know. Like, actually, it's, uh, it's, it's a really, really terrifying time. So it's so important to have you know, rallies and, and protests to things like um, the, the Bannon Trump, no, Bannon Trump, Bannon from, whatever. They're all the same, okay? All the guys, all the white guys who are debating amongst themselves the difference between fine wine and non-fine wine, okay? Um, but, and beyond that, we need to, to pay attention to all of the other things that we talked about that is happening alongside those big events. So the, the lack of memory that happens, the, <laughs> hello, 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 come in. Um, the, the, um, the short memory that we have, uh, the refusal of the public to engage in some of these big questions and these big ideas, all of these things are really important to our organizing. The training that Nora was just talking about, making sure that we're creating sustainable movements, where we're training people to do this work, making sure that the organizations that we do have in places where we don't have as strong social movements as a place like, for example, Quebec, the organizations that we do have, uh, our unions, political parties, uh, you know, uh, community organizations, that we're pushing them to be better all the time, That and that those those pushes aren't, you know, responded to it by, or aren't, that people don't respond to those pushes with like, why do you hate me, but instead are, you know, committed to the power of a debate to make, to create a better, better organizing strategy for us all. But it's like uh, life and death. <laughs> and I, I don't know that everybody looks at it this way. Uh, I think, you know, as someone who lives in my body as a black woman, like it's always this way. But I'm like hoping that we're um, as much as possible showing people that like this is where we're headed for everyone. And so uh, it is imperative upon us to organize or die. And that <laughs> um, concludes part one. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you.